0: This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. Today's episode was recorded back in late February when the COVID-19 pandemic wasn't the center of every conversation. Do you even remember pre-COVID life? It feels like a past life. Anyway, I've heard from many of you that although the COVID-19 content has been interesting, you're looking for the regular content that we release here on Made Visible about invisible illness. So I'm really excited to share these episodes with you that we pre-recorded pre-COVID. So without further ado, today's guest, John Boyle, is someone I've gotten to know on the professional level, but haven't heard much about his personal story with invisible illness. So I'm looking forward to discussing it and sharing it with you here. Welcome, John.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me, Harper.
0: So happy to have you here. So let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what you do.
1: I am the president and the CEO of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a not-for-profit organization located in Maryland, and we work together on behalf of the primary immunodeficiency community. Of course, I got into this because I was born with a form of primary immunodeficiency known as X-linked agammaglobulinemia.
0: Right. So the Immune Deficiency Foundation, interestingly, came into my life shortly after I had surgery about eight years ago. And my mom got a pamphlet in the mail for your immune deficiency conference in Baltimore. And it was the first time that we ever sort of approached being amongst other people living with immune deficiencies, because I had been so resistant to connecting with other people and really sort of isolating myself for so much of my life. And this was the first time that we were in a room with other caregivers and obviously patients and doctors. And it was just so fascinating. You guys do an incredible job at putting it all together and creating content and community around this topic. So just wanted to give a little context on our connection here. Tell us a little bit more about XLA, which you were diagnosed when you were six months old. What is it? How does it work? How are you diagnosed?
1: Well, XLA was actually the first. Form of primary immunodeficiency to be described, and that was described back in 1952. So it is uh, one that's reasonably well understood. And when I was diagnosed in 1978, it was one of those few forms of primary immunodeficiency that back then people had a good feel for. Of course, that did not make the diagnosis have as easy as my parents would have liked it, but still, you know, it was a decent time to be diagnosed. But in terms of my parents and my Getting to that point, you know, I had been born, uh, I would say, the first child of uh, my parents and turned out to be the only child, you know, and the first six months were great, you know, bouncing baby boy. But when I was about six months old, I got a, a respiratory infection that sounded a little weird to people and progressed uh, really at a level that was surprising. And I basically was going downhill very, very quickly with a respiratory infection that could not be cleared and that, uh, you know, the writing was on the wall, that something was wrong here. And so, you know, I will spare you all the details there, but in reasonably short order, as I was going downhill, my pediatrician bumped me over to another doctor who later bumped me over to the folks over at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, which was reasonably close to where it was that I grew up. And they basically hurried me over to Hopkins saying, this child is getting sicker and sicker. As soon as i got there pretty much they had to intubate me because uh, my ability to breathe on my own was uh, severely compromised and while there and as they kind of went through this crisis management of this sick little uh, child they realized i had an advanced form of pneumonia known as pneumocystis and back then in 1978 it was unheard of for a child to get pneumocystis it meant that something was really really wrong But happily, Johns Hopkins uh, happened to have a very strong clinical immunology practice at the time. And so they were able to find the right people and get me into the ICU and do some of the testing that they needed to do to figure out what it was. And back then, David Vetter, known to many as the, uh, the boy in the plastic bubble, was very much the face of primary immunodeficiency. And so my parents were essentially told, you know, we think that your child has an immune deficiency. It could be Skid, severe combined immune deficiency, which David had, to which my parents were, of course, flabbergasted. Or it could be this other condition known as XLA. Um, happily, it turned out to be the latter. And I say happily because XLA is reasonably simple as far as a lot of forms of PI go. There's a single gene that's involved, the BTK gene. And when there is some sort of a mutation or some sort of a problem with it, then essentially the BTK gene is supposed to take pre B cells, you know, those baby B cells, if you uh, will, and turn them into full grown adult B cells, which then allows them to create antibodies or immunoglobulins. Since I have that gene defect, I don't have any mature B cells. Hence, I don't have any antibodies. So no IgG, which is the kind of weightiest one in terms of your immune response. Uh, no IgA, no IgE, no IgM, et cetera. So it is a serious form of PI, of course, as they all are. But the good news is there was, even back then in the bad old days, an immunoglobulin replacement therapy. There was a way of getting back some of what it was. That my body did not produce naturally, in this case, IgG or antibodies.
0: So, you've mentioned PI. Can you explain what PI stands for and what it is?
1: PI stands for primary immunodeficiency. There are other people and other countries which call it PID for primary immune deficiency two words or primary immune deficiency disease. Uh, we have found that it is easier and more embraced. To just refer to it as primary immunodeficiency or PI.
0: Okay, thanks for explaining that. You mentioned a treatment. How long have you been on it?
1: I've been on uh, immunoglobulin replacement therapy since 1978, so you can do the math there. The thing that I've experienced, though, has been a little unique in that I've been on it so long, I've gotten to see a lot of the development within this space. So when I first started out, they were these terrible intermuscular injections and the bioavailability, the, the way that the immunoglobulin moves throughout your body was not great. Well, when I was six, they switched over to the IV therapy. IVIG became possible for people to do here in the United States. So I switched over to that. Instead of getting multiple, you know, hyper painful shots every other week of this immunoglobulin, you know, we ended up being able to make it so that once every four weeks, I would get this one little needle through an IV. And it was one of the best days of my life, switching from IM, intermuscular intramuscular to IV intravenous. And then uh, a few decades later, I switched over to the subcutaneous version of immunoglobulin, which just means that I take these two little needles and I kind of insert them uh, into kind of the fatty part of the skin. And once a week, I do an infusion and uh, did that last night. And I am basically good to go for the week.
0: That's amazing to see those kind of developments. That's huge to be a part of it and to be able to recognize that the drug is you know, developing over the years and you're able to develop with it. What kind of symptoms are you dealing with these days in your life, if any?
1: The symptoms I deal with kind of on a day to day basis are minimal happily because Really, of the fact that I have to put a fair bit into managing my condition on a day to day basis. Uh, the immunoglobulin gives me the most important part uh, back of my immune system that is not functioning, but I am still at risk because of the other immunoglobulins that I don't produce. So, sinus infections and sinus issues are kind of a low level rumbling in my world, uh, as are gastrointestinal issues. You know, one tiny bit of bacteria in my gut will become a problem. Meanwhile, most people are going to have the proper immunoglobulins in their gut to take care of a little, you know, something that's out there. So really, it's GI and sinus more often than not, but with some prophylactic antibiotics, with the issues of immunoglobulin, and with just a lot of very considerate hour-to-hour and day-to-day maintenance, of am I getting enough sleep? Am I well-rested enough? Am I eating well? Uh, Am I doing all the things that I can to minimize the chance that an opportunistic infection could break through my somewhat decent barriers? You know, on average, I have maybe an equal number of infections to most of my colleagues here at the office, but just different ones. They might get, you know, a cold more quickly than I do, but a little bit of food poisoning with me goes a long way.
0: That's great that you don't have that crazy of symptoms. But as a kid, when did you become aware that you had a chronic condition? And what was that like?
1: Well, at some level, I never knew differently. And that's really why it is that I'm doing as well as I am right now. You know, A lot of it was, of course, the early diagnosis, really, as well as my parents and my medical care team instilling in me from the get-go. How it is that I'm supposed to do things, you know, I knew that I was a little bit different, a because I had to go and get these shots, b because my parents and care team talked to me a lot about infections, okay, you know I, I was a you know little boy running around on the playground, okay, if I get a cut, I really have to wash it off. I should go to the nurse's office, get a little bit of hydrogen peroxide put on it. I had to be you know very self aware of how my body was doing because okay, you know if I'm proactive, that's great. If I'm not, then I might be spending several days out of school with an infection that I just can't shake as well as the average person might.
0: So you were aware of the potential repercussions and did what you could to prevent them and were really empowered clearly by your parents and your medical team to really be aware of those things.
1: In general, yes. I mean, to be honest, when you know, you're six years old, there's only so much that is going to absorbed and, you know, in terms of good habits and things like washing your hands and dealing with those cuts and things like that, talking, talking to my parents and the care team, uh, you know, that was a lot of it. As time went on, I discovered how I could basically keep myself even healthier by, frankly, doing a lot of those things better because children are grubby and gross. I can say that as a father of a 10-year-old who is, you know, wonderful, but grubby and gross. Um <laughs> So it was a process, but from the get-go, they gave me a few of the pieces that would help me and help to make this a partnership in terms of keeping me healthy. And as time went on, my understanding of what really needed to happen to uh, to stay healthy was enhanced, all the while, of course, dealing with what was an invisible illness. People saw that I got sick a lot, but... They didn't know why and they did not understand it. And again, these are the the pre-internet days. And so that made life all the more interesting as we were going through.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. You've mentioned your parents. So your mom founded the Immune Deficiency Foundation in 1980, and you're now the president and CEO of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. Can you talk about what the IDF does and, of course, why your mom started it when she did? Of
1: course. Of course. Back in 1980, when it was started, I had really just not too long before come out of the woods because I you know, was diagnosed at six months, but I had another bout of pneumocystis when I was about 18 months. And so once my parents got to kind of a new normal with me, they basically said, okay, we've never heard of this condition before. We'd really like to get involved with others who are kind of helping to educate and and to do those things uh, and to advocate for children and families who are dealing with XLA or other forms of primary immunodeficiency. But when they looked around, they found out that there was nothing, at least in the U.S. and really nothing around the globe, that was... Fitting that bill. And so they got together with some uh, other parents of uh, folks with PI, as well as some medical professionals, starting at Johns Hopkins and then branching out from there to create an entity that would fill that niche. And so IDF really was founded with the focus on providing information to families that they could understand that would help them along their journey. And of course, as time went on, you know, We go from information to connection and bringing people together who have these rare and invisible illnesses you know, where they say, nobody gets me, to which we say, well, here are some people who do. And then as time goes on further, the need for advocacy, the need to engage with you know these companies that are saying, hey, we know that you've got your intramuscular shots. That's great, but we've got this crazy new idea about intravenous immunoglobulin and You know, we're going to need patients for clinical trials and the like. So as time went on, IDF evolved. We've been doing what we do uh, for almost 40 years now. And really, our areas of focus now are, of course, in this education field for helping to orient families who are newly diagnosed because the information that they receive is usually not terribly deep. And they usually have a lot of questions, some of which their clinicians can't answer but then also the advocacy, helping the entire PI community with issues connected to uh, the therapies they receive, the care that they receive, their diagnosis. uh, When it comes to insurers, when it comes to the FDA, when it comes to all of these gatekeepers and powerful players who are frankly responsible in different corners for the U.S. healthcare system. And nobody ever means to overlook people with pi but when policies are made they don't tend to think about people with an immune deficiency and so that that sort of uh, broad brush that they sometimes will paint with does not work very well for us and sometimes it will uh, impede our ability to get immunoglobulin or other therapies or the testing that's needed and so we're really here at a lot of levels to help bring people together and to, if you will, plant a stake in the ground when a stake needs planting to say, there's an issue here that impacts our patient population. And we think we've got a fix. We think we've got a way of making this as close to a win-win as possible. And so a lot of it is educating them, helping them to understand why it is that, you know, if we receive the treatment uh, that exists, if they invest in uh, additional treatments and help pursue that, that we will be productive members of society and that chronic illness can be a part of our life, but not an enormous part of our life. And that, you know, if we choose to not be terribly open about our condition, then that is a person's choice that they can live with this invisible illness. If they feel that they're getting essentially the quality of care that they need and that they're having this sort of quality of life that they should have. And of course, not everyone knows when they get that diagnosis, what their quality of life should be. And so we're here to help bridge some of those gaps, fill in some of the missing pieces and make sure people know what the world can look like and help to maybe raise their sights.
0: You guys do so much. And I remember when I was first introduced to it, you brought up the point of people not wanting to share. I remember you guys connected me to someone else similar age to me that had my condition. And she emailed me, introducing herself to me, and i had given you permission to connect us. And she was so confident in her condition and had been sort of public with it. And everyone knew she had this condition. And I remember the sense of overwhelm that I felt by hearing this woman's story and connecting with it so much, but also being like, oh, my God, she's saying it in such a confident way that I couldn't resonate with because it was something that I had hid for so long. And so it opened up this door to look where we are now having this conversation on my podcast, all dedicated to invisible illness. But that's some of the magic that you guys do of bringing people together, creating community and really creating a platform of resources, both through, you know, programming and events, as well as just having this incredible resource of content on your website. When people ask me what my condition is, hyper IGE, the first link I send them is from your website, because everything else out there is like super confusing and not straightforward to be able to say, here's exactly what the condition is. And so it's really been a real resource for me. And I know for so many other people, one of the big things that you guys believe in is the concept of Think Zebra. Can you talk a little bit about what that is?
1: Of course, it is. Uh, <laughs> it is not only enduring with our community, but we're seeing more and more uh, use of it outside of our community. So there's an aphorism that's out there. There's an old saying that medical students are supposedly taught, and some of them have said that they did hear this: that when you hear hoofbeats coming up behind you, think horses, not zebras. So when you can hear that creature coming up behind you, the odds are good. It's going to be the thing. That you see in everyday life, a horse, the thing that it's almost always is. It's always a horse. Well, not always. Sometimes it is a zebra that is galloping your way. And so, really, this is, you know, and it's become a bit of an identity thing. And of course, if you come to any of our events, you'll see people uh, decked out in, in zebra swag, which Can be horrifying or it can be uh, uh, amazing. (laughs) Um, So true. Oh yes. Oh yes. And those who have uh, two X chromosomes have a lot more options than uh, than those of us who have a Y chromosome.
0: People definitely take it to a whole other level. Oh,
1: it's it, it is amazing. But you know, there's this identity issue in there, which is great because they're saying, "Hey, I'm a zebra. I am a little bit different." And doctors. You know, medical professionals, parents, whomever, you've got to recognize that it's not always the thing that you expect. Sometimes it is that zebra, sometimes it is that rare one in a million or more diagnosis.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message comes from BetterHelp. That's Better H E L P, an online counseling service that matches you with a licensed professional therapist. No matter where you are in the world, BetterHelp lets you schedule video and phone sessions with your therapist or even text them. Not only is it convenient, but it's also affordable. BetterHelp's therapists specialize in many different issues from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, self-esteem, and more. I've talked with many guests about the importance of therapy, and it's something I believe everyone can benefit from. It's so valuable to be able to talk to someone with an informed outsider's perspective. With BetterHelp, you can have these conversations at your own pace through a secure online platform and with a counselor you love and who gets you. It's not self-help. It's BetterHelp. Made Visible listeners can get 10% off their first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com backslash made visible. That's betterhelp.com slash made visible. And now, back to the show.
1: One of the challenges with zebras is that by and large, most of us have invisible illnesses. You wouldn't know to look at us that we have a compromised immune system and the temptation of uh, you know, the ER doc, Or the general practice physician or a nurse is to say, Well, I see this note in your chart, but this is the way that we always treat people. So we're going to treat you the same. It should work. To which we have to say, No, I'm a zebra. We've got it, you know, I've been down this road more times than I can count. I know that this routine that you're planning for me is not going to work. This is not going to be. Take a Z-Pack, and uh, you know, five days later, you're going to be in good shape. I, in a lot of cases, I'm going to need a long course of antibiotics—21 days—in order to clear something. So the think zebra concept, you know, we really do try to pivot it so that it is, in part, a diagnosis thought that you know, when you have this person who is sick all the time, maybe they're a zebra, maybe they have a primary immunodeficiency. But then once you are diagnosed and you are living your life and you are having to battle with the medical community, the insurance community, maybe people in your own life, that you say, look, I may not look it, but I am a little bit different. This doesn't define me, but it is a part of me. And when I tell you what is going on with me, you've got to understand that I'm telling you from a place of some experience and expertise. So. Just in all sorts of ways, the zebra concept has really been embraced by our community and then a lot of others who have either a rare disease or something else that makes them a little bit falling outside of the norm of what our healthcare system is really set up or patched together, I should say, to address.
0: I love it. And I think that it's great that people do really make it visible by wearing Zebra patterns to your events and walks and conferences, and really sort of standing out in their own way. It's something special. It's unique. What is your focus for the IDF for two thousand twenty? What are some of the things that you're working on?
1: So in two thousand twenty, uh, we're really deepening a bunch of the areas that we have traditionally found to be very helpful to our community. You know, but we're trying to frankly do more of it and trying to put more resources towards spreading out the opportunities that we have to make a lot of these, let's say, in-person connections. Uh, There's an estimated 250,000 people in the U.S. alone with a form of PI. Now, not all of them need support. Not all of them need their quality of life brought up. Some of them are, are doing great, and we are so happy for that. But majority really are not. We hear day in and day out from people that say, oh my gosh, I wish I'd known about you earlier. There are so many people out there who need our help and who need help just in some way shape or form so to have more of our state level meetings to enhance the number of get connected groups the little support groups that uh, people put on and they uh, they do every maybe couple of months to really expand the number of opportunities for someone with pi to interact with other people to learn from other people and so really that expansion of those sort of direct connection opportunities is a big piece of it. Another piece is going deeper with the specific diagnoses, trying to not treat immune, uh, deficiencies as this sort of broad brush and to recognize things that we have in common that are challenges, but also the things that are specific and different.
0: I love that. And I think that you bring up a really good point of having people connect on the emotional side of things is a huge part. Of managing an invisible illness. And it's something we talk about a lot. And I think you guys do a great job of connecting people in order for them to learn from each other's experiences and feel less alone in what they're going through. And I know that you're advocating taking care of your own mental health, as well as obviously your physical health. At what point in your health journey, did you realize that that was an important thing that you wanted to do and focus on?
1: Uh, Well, frankly, it was only a few years ago, you know, I grew up in a healthcare system that is very good at, or reasonably good at, uh, treating infections, you know, giving you therapies, going on from there until. More recently, mental health has not been as much a part of the conversation with your average clinician. And so realizing as time went on that all the needle sticks, all you know, the, the things that I've been through, all the strange infections, hospitalizations, they've taken a little bit of a toll. And also just because of genetics or whatever the case may be, I am an anxious person. Not wildly, but realizing that, as I try to keep everything in balance, try to keep my health in balance, try to keep my family you know needs and uh, and engaging and being the the father and the husband that I'm supposed to be, that with all of these things that go on that they're just normal human things, but that as I have this additional level of challenge with having an immune deficiency, that my mental health was something that could use a little bit of attention. So once I figured it out, and frankly, I figured it out because I was hearing from other people in our community about their experiences and they were being open. They were saying, oh yeah, I have anxiety and this is the way that, you know, I experience it. I would get this panic attack and I felt X way. And I said, my gosh, that's kind of close to the way that I felt. So once I talked with my doctor you know, who had never brought it up to me personally, but as soon as I brought it up to him, he said, oh yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. And let's try you on, you know, a baby dose of this anti-anxiety med. And it wasn't a revelation, but my gosh, did it even things out. And it's made my day-to-day life so much better and so much easier. And the real issue was I was never aware of it. And if I had been aware of it earlier, it would have been nice but i was brought up to be attuned to my physical health and for everyone to be looking at that and for people to recognize you know that i did have this invisible illness which was a primary immunodeficiency but they weren't really talking about uh and this is again you know the age that i was brought up in they weren't looking at that other dimension and so for anyone who is diagnosed with a pi or any parent who is dealing with their child or a spouse or a caregiver who's involved, um, the burden that it can place on you as a patient or the burden that it can place on you as a parent, caregiver, spouse, whomever, is significant. I mean, the parents who go through a rough diagnosis with their kid often have something that is very close to PTSD and no one realizes it and no one talks about it. Or not many people do, and not historically. But now we're getting people to open up and to self-identify, which can be uncomfortable and it can come with its own challenges, but it helps other people to recognize sometimes the thing that they're dealing with, be it anxiety, be it depression, be it PTSD, be it you know not being on the same page as their partner about how they deal with these things. So breaking down the stigma, getting people to question, you know, whether, oh, could this be an issue? Is this something that I should look into with my care team uh, or my family? Just having those conversations happen early makes it so that as you're dealing with your physical invisible illness, that you don't have this additional baggage of something that is weighing you down and making life harder for you to deal with those issues, you know, when dealing with the different dimensions would make life all the more easier and be a real accelerator maybe for your health in general.
0: I really appreciate you acknowledging that. And I think it's such a huge topic. And I think it's getting a little bit more airtime recently. More podcasts are coming out and more content is coming out. A lot of celebrities and influencers are certainly starting to speak out about anxiety and depression and mental health. But I still believe there's a stigma around it. So I think To have more people coming out and talking about and exposing themselves is only going to help other people talk about their situation. So thank you for sharing yours. One other thing I wanted to address is you mentioned your son, who's 10 years old. What does he know about your health and about the IDF as it relates to his life?
1: Uh, Well, he knows a fair bit happily, and uh, between a couple of our publications and others, he has some basic understanding of antibodies and what happens when your, you know antibodies aren't there um, he is a wonderfully caring little person and he gets frankly very concerned when he can see that I'm you know a little bit under the weather or I might be getting sick for him and for any you know one who's in your family who is is kind of getting used to this again he's never known anything different so it's been at some level easier for him to say hey dad has got this issue he's got a condition I take medicine but I still have to be you know mindful of it and and there's areas where I kind of need your help buddy you know so he's grown up knowing zebras he's grown up knowing that while I am a little bit at risk that there's other people in our community who are more at risk and it's made him I think very empathic towards other people which is great. For us as a family, it's a journey, just the way that I was kind of taught piece by piece. And as I was able to absorb more, I deepened my knowledge of what my condition was. My son is going to be going on a similar journey in terms of understanding the nuance of what it is that I, and then more importantly, other people are dealing with because he comes to a decent number of IDF events and gets to see, if you will, zebras of all stripes. But part of it is also... So he is attuned to the fact that no one is, quote-unquote, normal. You know, with primary immunodeficiencies, approximately 1 in 1,200 people are diagnosed with some form of PI, be it skid, be it CVID, be it XLA, be it Hyper-IGE, or any other number of those 400 that are out there. But when a child looks around their classroom... They see that they have a friend who has diabetes that you know has a muscular a skeletal issue who maybe has uh, incredibly severe maybe life threatening allergies when you have a parent who is affected by a chronic and/ or rare condition, it changes you a little bit and I think it it puts him hopefully on track to being a very thoughtful and understanding person who realizes that everyone's a little bit different. Everyone has their burden to bear when it comes to their health and that things change. You might be doing well right now, but down the line, you might not. And at that point, you might have to ask for help either on the physical side or the mental or the emotional or really any other piece that shows that at one point or another, it's not unusual to have a problem that requires some medical intervention and that requires some additional thought and effort put towards maintaining your health.
0: I think it's so great that you have this amazing kid as a son and that you've been able to provide him with you know, the knowledge that he needs to know about your condition, about zebras in general, and how he can be more aware and empathetic towards them. So the work that you're doing with the IDF is amazing and continue doing what you're doing. How can people learn more about you and the IDF?
1: The best way, I think, to go is to simply go to the website, which is, again, a portal for more information than you could probably ever want, www.primaryimmune.org. And of course, uh, IDF is on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. And I am on, well, all those as well. Thank you. Well, Harper, thank you for this podcast. anything to shed a little bit of light on these diagnoses and these conditions that most people don't know about is vitally important. And it takes so many people working on this from different angles to help raise the awareness that these conditions do exist and that you don't know what someone is living with just by looking at them. So I feel in many things, it takes a village. So I really appreciate your doing your part for all of us with an invisible illness and uh, for just shedding light into areas where those of us who have lived with this for decades want more people to know about it. So I uh, appreciate the chance to to talk about my little corner of the rare disease invisible illness world and appreciate all that you do for all others who are in a similar situation.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do any of this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com and follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor, Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer, Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music, and Amanda Gracio for the design.